today, I get to talk to Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram. She was really interesting. One of the, one of the more nervous times I've ever had because she's just such a huge icon in the design world, and I'm not really a design guy. I, I'm, I'm not a designer, more of a writer, more of an ad guy. So that was, I felt, a little bit out of my depth, but she talked a lot about her big projects, um, the city logo, the public theater, all that stuff for the public theater. She creates all that at Pentagram. She talked about the, the interesting way that Pentagram is structured and works. She talked about making mistakes. And she talked about uh, one of my favorite album covers, the uh, Boston Boston album cover, the original, the first Boston album cover, which she created, but she kind of hates it. She kinda <laughs> it's interesting to, to talk to somebody who's like, yeah, that was kind of something I just did. But it's, a, it's one of those iconic pieces of art that has really uh, caught on in the culture. So it was really interesting to, to hear about her work ethic and the way that she comes to a project and just her whole being is so interesting to me. So I think you'll find it, uh, you'll find it interesting. And now, my interview with Paula Scher. Thanks for coming in, Paula Scher. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah. Um, you're one of the one of the first uh, design designers that we've had on here, and certainly the biggest designer that we've had on here. Um, where did you grow up? Where where did where did it all start for you? Um, I my father worked for the government in Washington D.C., and I grew up first in um, Fairfax County, Virginia, and then Silver Spring, Maryland, and went to uh, high school in Silver Spring, Maryland, and then went to college in Philadelphia. Wow. Tyler School of Art. Uh, and what what made you get into art? What was the what was the draw for you? Your dad was in the in the government. Um, I was um, always drawing in my room, uh -huh. and I used to retreat there, particularly to ex you know escape from my family or family yeah. arguments or disputes or things where I was the center of it. Uh -huh. And I began drawing at a very early age, and. When I was in uh, junior high school, I went down to Washington, D.C. and took courses at the Corcoran School of Art, um, where I sort of encountered a lot of artists. A lot of them were uh, painters and people who were grown up uh, and uh, people who were beatniks at that time. And um, I liked it. Yeah. I liked the group. I liked the vibe. I liked the school. So you saw other people doing it and you were like, ooh, I'd like to be like those people. Uh, very much so. And, and you know, I wasn't, when I went to uh, my suburban high school, liking art was sort of odd. You, were, yeah. you weren't supposed to do it. Uh, you were supposed to be interested in other things like football games, which I wasn't particularly interested in. <laughs> but uh, I used my ability uh, to make some forms of social connections in that I became the publicity chairman of the school and I made all the school posters. Oh, wow. And uh, I had an art teacher who was very encouraging of me and um, Mr. Tucker. And he had a, a glass case outside the art room and he used to hang up picture of the week. And I got to be picture of the week at least four times. Wow. I was very excited about that. That was great. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, you're sort of doing the same thing that you were doing back then that made you happy. That uh, made you feel uh, I was pretty lucky. I, I knew what I wanted to do uh, at a very young age. I just didn't know that it was called graphic design. Right. Um, I just thought I wanted to be an artist. Yeah. And when did that switch flick for the graphic design thing? When did you realize, oh, there's a there's a job in this that I could actually do? Well, I went to Tyler School of Art, and uh -huh. Tyler School of Art had um, 
two years of really where you took everything. You took painting, you took sculpture, you took printmaking, you took metals, you took ceramics, uh, sculpture, mm. all sorts of things that I really was terrible at. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I thought my strong suit— But that didn't suit, stop you. No, it didn't stop me, and I liked the school. But my strong suit, I thought, was going to be drawing and painting, and it really wasn't. There were so many people who were— really much better draftsman than me or understood the medium of painting better than me. And I took a course in my uh, junior year called um, graphic design. And actually, no, I'm sorry, it was in my sophomore year. It was the second half of my sophomore year. And I had taken a graphic design course in my freshman year and hated it because it was taught on the Bauhaus methodology. And it was all about moving a black square around a white page. And Really, so much of it seemed about being neat, and right. it wasn't particularly neat. So I, um, but in this second uh, course I took, which was my sophomore year, it was about ideas. Yeah, and it was solving problems with visual cues, yeah. and I discovered I was good at it. Oh, so that it took you, but it took you almost two years. It to... took me two years to to, and you know, I, for me. Finding what I'm good at is an ever-evolving yeah. uh, playing field. You know, like I'm still trying to find out what I'm good at. Yeah, you are. Absolutely. Still to this day. Still to this day. It, wh- when was the last time you found something that, oh, my God, I'm good at this, that I didn't realize I, I was good at? What was the—I I know your paintings are, are something that well, sort of— Well, I'm still learning uh, from projects I'm working on. For example, I've been working for the public theater for over 25 years, and I'm still discovering how to do it. Yeah. What, what, in what way? Well, you it takes time to know an organization, and it takes mm. time to understand how a culture behaves, and it takes time to know a city, and it takes time to understand how um, works interact with audience over time. Mm. And that's a, that's a real learning experience. You can't just do a job and say you're an expert. You're really not. Mm. Um, you may have gotten lucky, you may have solved things in a fairly mediocre way, but you may not have really figured out the specifics of the the problem in a very, I would say, deep way. Um, To know something is really to know it, that you sort of have to live it and breathe it and experience it. And and make mistakes along the way. Mistakes are a very important part of everything. You only learn from the mistakes. And you talk about um, the the difference, sorry, the difference between... the difference between seriousness and, and solemnity. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like it, it, it dovetails with what you were just talking about. Well, there's a form of professionalism that we all become trapped in when we're doing our work. And it really is a kind of assumption that if you follow general rules of operating, you'll get a, a desired result. Mm. And, and very often you do. But it's usually fairly contrived or it might be um, formulaic Mm. um, simply because to really discover something, you have to make errors. Right. Because you don't – nobody – no one who's experimenting immediately gets to the answer. Right. You really have to go through this period of trial and error to make a discovery. So when you make the discovery, very often the discovery looks weird because it's new. Right. Or it's not the way you expect to see it. Right. So the first time, it's kind of a bizarre thing to put out into the world. And usually somebody comes along and does it better than you the second time. Right, right. But you have to make the discovery because that's what's interesting. Yeah. 
And how do you keep yourself? Because because you are uh, known throughout the world. Uh, people say your name on the on the list of of. Uh, of designers, uh, certainly. If I was going to design some type, I would I would want you to be there. But how do you keep from letting that uh, the knowledge that everybody thinks you know the answer stop you from keeping that experimentation and and that feeling of like I don't know what I'm doing. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. That's <laughs> the whole point. No one does. No one any, knows any, what any, doing. Anybody who says they do are sort of half lying. Yeah. Because it's not scientific, and there isn't a there isn't a formula, and you can't follow directions and be a designer, and you can't say that all jobs are similar and the same. They're not because yeah. they have they have different econ- economies, they have different cultures they're addressing, they have different political internal problems, and that the combinations of these things affect everything. Right. So every time you're thrown into a situation that seems repetitive of another situation, it really isn't. Right. Yeah, when you think, oh, I've been here before, is that a red flag for you? Well, when, when I say, oh, I've been here before, it means that I'm not feeling terribly creative and I don't want to sustain the energy level it's going to take to make the situation new. Right, right. It's me doing it. Yeah. It's not the situation. How do you make the situation new? How do you, how do you, how do you, do you, do you have to shake it up? Do you have to sort of do some, like when you see it becoming like, oh, this is one of those jobs where like, what do you do to Well, it's very difficult it? because you have to, you have to uh, approach it as a neophyte. And for me to do that, I've done that in certain ways by changing the sorts of things I work on. It's hard to do it in a given milieu of graphic design if there's a, you know, uh, three identities for fast food restaurants that are like Shake Shack, which is yeah. what people call me for because I did Shake Shack. Right. Uh, you know, then, then you know, you know that they're coming to you for that. You know that their expectation is something like that. So it's, yeah. it's very hard to be fresh with it. On the other hand, if you say, I'm not going to do those for a while, and you go and do something that you never did before, that's where you're likely to shake it up. Yeah. It's probably not in the job. And that's not because of the job. That's because of you. Right. That's because you already know. You came to it with, you know with the already much. knowing brain. Right. You Knowing too much is a terrible thing. It's great to great to not know what you're doing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it is great to not know what you're doing. That's why we do this podcast, because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, the, uh, the other thing that, that you've talked about is is hating Helvetica, <laughs> uh, that I, I really love. And, and we, we got a kick out of that at the office, because it is like one of those... Uh, well, you got to hate it. You got to hate it, but then you came around. Well... You know, in school, and I, I think this is really true of everybody. You, you know, when you're when you're a designer in school, and you're starting to understand the world, and you're starting to understand visual culture, it's your job to overthrow what came before you. Mm. If you're not doing that, something's wrong. Mm. You know, and then and you're, you're it's your job to be a brat and say, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do it this way. And that's yeah. how stuff gets invented. And the young generation always does that. Yeah. What's 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 and we sad always think about, they're idiots when well, they're doing the older it. Older <laughs> people always think they're idiots and they're right, and the younger people always think the old people are stuck in some old way of doing things and they're right. Yeah, and that that they're both right because yeah. you do different things at different points of time in your life, and you're right. better at different things. And 
you, the arrogance and brattiness of being young is a good thing because it, it forces you to, to break some rules yeah. and it forces you to look at things in a different way. And then other people do things that way and then it becomes a style and right. then it becomes hackneyed and then it becomes dated and then you're the, you're the, the purveyor of that. What's actually great about Helvetica is that survives it all. It's like <laughs> if you don't know what you just like the palate cleanser. If you don't know what you're doing at one point, you can always stick a bunch of Helvetica on the page. It's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but – the reality was, for me, I made cultural associations about Helvetica. For example, it mm. was the the language of corporate culture mm. of uh, you know sixties and seventies modernism. At the time, I was entering the design profession, and so it was the you know symbolmatic you know is emblematic of these horrible corporations that are supporting the Vietnam War. Right. So I made an association with it. And I just thought right. it was the enemy. Right. Um, and didn't like it and liked to work with old funky fonts and things that were, would now be described as retro. And, yeah. and I taught myself typography that way. And I wasn't that unusual. I think that each generation does that to a degree. I know people rebelled against me at a certain point. And yeah. that, you, you, that they're supposed to do that. That's, right. That's their job. Yeah. Uh, and did you feel at that point, was there a, oh, I don't get to be in on this revolution? Or do, do you try to join it? as well you can yeah you know it's like trying to wear something that somebody 20 years younger than you wears you yeah. can't you can't really pull it off you have to find your own be yourself your, your own style of how you're going to address things i mean i did things where i expanded the territory of what i did for example i began doing environmental graphics which was yeah easy to be good at because not many people did it you know, and, like and that, the people that, so that did it, was, it did it in a certain palleted way, and it was like there was this an is expectation this... about it. A lot of the people who designed signage worked, and you know, they were graphic designers working for architect firms, and they yeah. probably weren't given very much freedom to do very much with it. Right. And I took low budget jobs that demanded, you know, sometimes just painting a place. Yeah, and doing... I love what you did with the uh, NJ Pack. Well, that uh, was a breakthrough project because yeah. it was the cheapest thing to do with a school, and they let me do it. Yeah. Because all we were doing was really painting it, but it was. It, at the time that I did it, now it's not as extraordinary as it was then. Everybody does that now, right? But, right. But at that moment in time, it was a breakthrough project because I didn't know what I was doing. I did. <laughs> uh, there was, I remember there was a photograph of it in some kind of a uh, magazine about historic houses, and the the it was like they were horrified by it. Underneath it, it said, "Yikes." You know, like oh my God. there was a picture of it. I thought, oh God, of the I, painting, I, of, of your of, work, of, of the work yeah. of the, the New yeah. Jersey Performing Arts Center yeah. School. And I looked yeah. at it and I thought, uh oh, maybe <laughs> I made a real faux pas. You know, and, and then of course it turned around. But yeah. but you know, you do something like that, and it's terrific because you have the opportunity to do it. And because you're a neophyte, if I had been uh, probably more versed in the field, I might not have taken that risk. Right. What would you have done? Do you think you you would have done something more? Oh, we'll just do. I don't bits know. Here I wasn't versed in the field at the time. Right. Now I can't yeah, look yeah, at that yeah, building yeah. and not do it. But I right. but I yeah. think that that you know I think I was less safe as an environmental graphics designer at that point in time than I was as a graphic designer because I I learned right. as, as a graphic designer all the things that are mistakes. Like I know when you don't do it because you're going to get a yikes. Yeah, you yeah. know, and that's a shame sometimes. Right. Yeah. You got to kind of be stupid. Absolutely. Sometimes you sometimes you have to make a big mistake. Right. The problem with being a professional is you're not supposed to make a big mistake with other people's money. Right. That's right. Yeah. Because they give you a lot of money to do it. And then you're like, well, these mistakes happen. And they're like, but it's my money. Well, that's why I always worked, did so much pro bono work, because it was an opportunity to make mistakes. Right. Yeah. Because people are going to be more. That's where you grow. Um, and I, I loved also you talking about that um, 
when you said that the guys painting it, you you hired uh, people that were normally painted uh, flats fixed on the sides of. Sure. of uh, uh, I love that you did that. Was that a conscious decision or was that just that's what cheap. you had the money for? Yeah. They were cheap and they painted buildings. And they you would know. call you and say, hey, we, we changed some of your type. Your your letting was a little off, so we fixed that. And you they were, were right. okay with that? They were right. Oh, wow. Because when you blew thing, when you when they were blowing it up from a from a guideline, yeah. the spacing was off sometimes. Like yeah. they, they were they were really conscious of the space between the letter forms. And they yeah. showed me, you know, and they were right. They but but, but I to learned, have the, the I learned humility. Something. I learned something from these guys because they loved working on that project. And I've had a couple of other school projects like that where the same thing happened where I was working with union people who paint walls all the time. Yeah. And if you give them a job that's actually challenging, that is not merely just doing what they always do, you find that they'll become your pal and they just rise to the occasion and and, and own it yeah. in a way that they don't feel like they own something that's completely ordinary to do. Yeah. And it becomes an adventure for them. And that's really that's really fantastic. That's where I really love working with craftsmen, uh, mm. particularly in these kinds of situations. There's a mural painter I worked with who um, uh, blew up one of my map paintings for a, um, uh, a one of Bloomberg's high schools out in Queens and mm. repainted it. And it was just a magical experience um, because he did such a good job with it and opened my ideas about how things change in scale. And, and I oh, learned wow. a lot from that experience. They were, those are great things. Those are really, that's really the fun of working. Yeah, working with other people. Because a, lo- a lot of people get into our business and, and the business of, of making, uh, the business of art, uh, to sort of uh, stoke their own ego. And that sort of becomes the, the fuel uh, that can keep you from being humble enough to work with other people. And, and how did you find that balance between I'm a rising star, I did this thing myself, and working with other people? Or did you always have that? Did you always know that well, that I was I a... don't look at, look at it quite like you're describing it. Right. I mean, I think that, that the people that I'm working with that I generally hire it, you know, are an extension of the project. Yeah. So I don't look like, oh, I'm, I'm giving away my ego to them. I feel like it's all still the same thing because right. I'm working with them. And yeah. that, that it's a team they would sport. be, it's a, it's, it, I have a team at Pentagram. It, yeah. it is a team sport. You work yeah. with a lot of people and that they're all participating. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, you know, having an orchestra. You know, you're the conductor. Yeah. Uh, but if the violinist stinks, you can have a bad violin solo, you know, yeah. so that, that, that's part of the mix of the way you work. I mean, I don't think they're they're very. I mean, there's some designers that work all by themselves in a vacuum on on their computers, and mm. and and it has to do with the sort of jobs they take. The, the sort of jobs I'm generally doing are large scale and require a lot of collaboration with lots of people. Yeah, and you like that? That that's... I like some of it, and I don't like other parts of it. Like it, I like it when I know how somebody thinks, and I I feel confident about what's going to happen mm-hmm. even if even if i don't know what's going to happen i feel confident that their talents and their reliability and the the nature of the way we work together is going to see it through and i feel very uncomfortable when i don't feel like i'm in control of the situation or i don't know the the person or they disappear or i, right. I that sort of thing can make me very uncomfortable yeah um how did you get your first your first job what was what was that like 
uh, at which story. level? Your first, I mean, I've been your first professional, your first prof- like uh, you you worked at Columbia Records, right? That was not was my that? first. That was I had a I had a number of jobs. Mm-hmm. I had worked um, very very briefly for a crappy advertising agency called Lennon and Newell. That was just. You know, I worked in the bullpen for maybe yeah. three weeks and thought, oh, I got to get out of here. In Philly or in New no, York? No, in New York when okay. I first moved to New York. And then I then I quit that job. And I think for a period of time, I, I wanted to be a children's book illustrator. And I, um, I, I was going to take the summer off and illustrate a, a book I'd written. And um, what happened was I had seen an editor at Doubleday with this this book idea, and oh no, I had seen I showed him my portfolio, and he said, "Well, if you wanted if you want to do a children's book, the best thing you can do is write one." So I actually went off and wrote one, mm. and I came back with it, and he took the manuscript and the illustrations I made, and he lost them, um, <laughs> and the the the, the oh, book was uh, about. A bear family that um, were hibernating for the winter, and uh, they wanted to go to sleep, but they lived in New York City, and an owl had moved next door. Not an owl, a a kangaroo had moved next door, and they were practicing dancing or something like that. And it was this complicated narrative about these animals in a brownstone building that that, that were all at war with each other because of these various activities, and it was drawn as cutaways of the building. And uh, shortly after the, I lost the manuscript, I went looking around New York for another job, and I got a job at um, Random House designing the insides of children's books. And when I was at Random House, this illustrator named Stan Mack came up, and he was doing books with Random House. And he used to come into my little cubicle and smoke cigarettes, because I, I smoked cigarettes in there, so it was like this yeah. little smoky cubicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I told him that I'd written a children's book and what had happened with it. And he said, "If I told him the story, and I drew the sort of a diagram of the cutaways of the building about how all the animals move through the apartment building. And he said, um, if you let me sell it, if you let me illustrate it, I'll sell it. And I, so I said, sure. And I, I did a diagram of the book and gave it to him. And he took it to an editor at Pantheon named Jane Fader. She was just around the corner in the Random House building and sold it. <laughs> so I was 23 years old and I had a, a children's book published. And it, it is now reprinted by Princeton, but it was in print for 22 years. Wow. And then Princeton reprinted it, I think, four years ago. So it's still on the market. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, th- this stuff is accidental. Yeah. But I had thought of it and I had written it yeah. and there was a thing there that I had done but I didn't plan it to be that way nor did I plan that I would get this little job at Random House right or that this illustrator would come into your cubicle right. because he Absolute. smoked too and Absolutely. say hey I'll do it again and then you to have the again the humility of just like sure <laughs> yeah you go do it like I could <laughs> see you being like no 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 uh, only I can do it. Like, I did it right, or I did uh, I don't know. It's, it's I, went, I didn't have that. Just, I never had that like, kind of. I was so amazed that somebody was even interested in it. Yeah. So, so and he was, you know, Stan Mack used to do something in the Village Voice called Real Life Funnies. Yeah. I mean, his work was quite famous. It yeah. wasn't. Uh, yeah. So, and he had the ability to sell it. Um, right. So, why not? But then, um, uh, in my job at Random House, uh, my boss was leaving, and I was going to sort of be left there and inherit a new boss. And he felt bad because he thought I, you know, might not be treated well or appreciated or get a raise or grow. And he had a friend who worked inside the promotion department at CBS Records. 
And he said, why don't you go? You could work for Ted Bernstein. Mm. And I went over and I took the job inside the promotion department of CBS Records, which was sort of a silly department. Mm. And uh, for a period of time, I designed ads for things like Cashbox and Billboard, and they were very boring and silly. But I did a couple of good ones. And there was an art director at Atlantic Records, and he wanted to hire me to do ads at Atlantic. So I took that job after I was in that CBS department for two years. Mm. And I went to Atlantic, and at Atlantic, the covers and the advertising were done in the same department. So I got to design record covers. Wow. And you designed one of, like, America's favorite albums covers. (laughs) Boston. Boston. Which I hate. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I think we can play 10 seconds of more than a feeling now during (laughs) the podcast. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you you say like, ah, I hated that. I always hated it. I always hated it. I still hate it. But I charred by it. I'm totally charmed by it. Yeah. Um, And I'm amazed that... um, the, the records seem to have survived in the country and in the culture a very long period of time. Yeah. Like I was, I was in my kitchen chopping an onion about two years ago listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on, the, on NPR. Mm-hmm. And Peter Sagal started asking a question of the contenders. And the question had to do with spaceships leaving the Earth after the Earth blew up. And he said, you know, like the Boston cover. Now, he's telling this to the to the people in who were the contestants, I guess it's 2017. Yeah, I did that cover in 1976. Yeah, I mean, how can he be talking about a piece of graphic design from 1976? That's just years a ago. bizarro yeah. thing. Who would have ever thought anything like that would be possible? Really? Yeah, it's especially like the when American you're taught flag. it's a, a, it, well, you're taught it's ephemeral. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it isn't. Yeah, maybe it isn't because they're back. I have a record player. I'm trying to teach my kids to to uh, play records. They still don't get it. <laughs> well, vinyl. There's something about those big those big albums that I mean, even at the time I stopped because things turned into CDs. CDs, yeah. I knew I knew that the album covers were the thing. Yeah. That they were they were the they were the quintessential to listen to a new album. Yeah. And and if if you like the music and the artist and be able to look at the art and read the, read the liner notes and look at the graphics and look at the 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 lyrics sometimes were really that was really fantastic. Yeah. What, what, but that will never be again, or uh, well, it exists. It exists. Of, There's a small pocket yeah. of of that that's 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 being done again. I'm just surprised at the um, at the the maintained interest in it, yeah. and um, it never seems to go away. People buy. I can buy them back. My record, my records that I designed on eBay, which is I had to do when MoMA took a couple. I didn't have them, right. and uh, I went and just bought them. Yeah, but I, you know, I never thought when I was designing them they would have any particular value. And it strikes me that you were in book designing, you're in album designing. You really, you hadn't uh, taken that leap to where you are now. You were sort of working for other people inside of brands. When did you decide, I want to, is it get serious? Or did you ever feel like that what you were doing wasn't wasn't as serious as it could be? Or... No, I took. Or you I were t- just always, you were really into what you were designer, doing. When I was a record cover designer, I was I was East Coast art director of CBS Records for from um, 1975 to 1982 when I left, and mm. and I was in the record business a total of ten years. And I was when I was a record cover designer, I was dead on serious about it. Yeah, I wasn't serious about it in the way that. I view it now as having actual lasting cultural impact. It was more my craft. I learned typography doing it. I found the areas that I was really strong and that yeah. 
I began uh, freelancing and designing book jackets at the same time. And when I left in 82, I had I was on the AIGA board um, at okay. that point in time. I think I was the youngest board member. And I wanted yeah. to I wanted to leave and I was a fr- you know nervous, but I decided to start my own business and begin to freelance. Um which I did first slowly and then on contract to Time Inc., developing a magazine, and then went into partnership with Terry Coppell and uh, ran a design firm for seven or eight years before I joined Pentagram. Yeah, but you had you – had, it sounds like you had run uh, Atlantic Records uh, Well, Atlantic, well, Atlantic, I was an assistant art director. At CBS, I was the East Coast art director, and I was responsible for about 150 covers a year, and I yeah. was in my 20s. yeah. Um, and I was this little kid with this great job, yeah. and didn't even didn't even recognize it as a great job. Like I look around and I <laughs> see what's available to young people starting out, and there 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 aren't jobs like that. Yeah, you know where you get to you really get to make that kind of volume of thing. And I got to learn from my failures because there were so many of them. Yeah, what what were the in that time? What were what were the things you were learning? Do you think in that first? Well, I learned uh, I learned my own um, graphic language. Mm. There were things, like, for, for example, I never enjoyed art directing photo sessions. I found them really boring. I found it was you know the photographers would like you to come down and mostly they had out food for you and expect you to sort of sit around. I thought it was boring. Yeah. And there was a, a photographer who who uh, was terrific. He was a, a fashion photographer. He died young of AIDS. His name was Bill King. And in the uh, 70s and 80s, he, his fashion shoots were extraordinary. And he used to say that I was his favorite art director because I would come down, I had my effect, and then I'd leave, thank God. <laughs> you know, and I think that, that that was sort of what you did. You yeah. come down, you look around, you might say, well, the lighting, yeah. I don't know, and then you'd leave. Yeah. Because, because there was really nothing to do there. But so I, the idea of being an art director of photography was not something I especially wanted to do. Right. Um, Illustration, I felt much more comfortable with. My husband, Seymour Quast, was an illustrator. Yeah. I'd been around illustrators, and um, I collaborated with them well. And mm-hmm. I worked with every terrific illustrator in New York. And that was, that was strong for me. But what I really liked was making all type covers and designing things that I totally designed by myself. Because when the illustrators did it, they got the credit. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's, that. I, if, if you... If you can't draw and you don't want to take pictures, you yeah. better be good at something. And my thing was type. Yeah. What are you most proud of that you've? Um, I can't say an individual piece of work because I I just don't you know like, like I children. do there there are things I've done that I feel like I made breakthroughs with. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that way obviously about the public theater. Um, I felt that way about when I did the new school and really got criticized, and then it became a fad. You know, like mm. you know that that sort of watching something. If you you feel like you sort of push a boundary, and then then people follow um, yeah. is sort of exciting. Yeah. The I think my environmental graphic work as a body, I feel very very pleased with. Yeah. You know that, but I you know there I don't. I don't pick and choose favorites because I I know the foibles of every single one of them. Yeah, <laughs> you, you see you the, can't. It's like like a like a Hollywood actor watching their performance. Right. Uh, you see the you see where you messed up. Is that's that... that's I I did a job recently that I think 
I enjoy because it was the least there were there were no mistakes in it like there were no screw ups in the building of it which was this um, headquarters for Scholastic which is all children's objects and uh, from 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 children's book illustrations that are blown up into real objects like Camp, Captain Underpants you know blast through a wall yeah. or Harry Potter is on a, st- a stained glass mural on the ceiling <laughs> and I I enjoy it. But it's not, I can't say it's my favorite project. Mm-hmm. You know, like I look at it and I think, oh, we finally got it right here. You know, there weren't any big mistakes. Right. That went off without a hitch. Yeah. <laughs> I like the quad cinema that we did recently, too. That was fun. Oh, okay. You know? But, but you know, there. I can't say, oh, was that the, no, it's not my favorite piece of work ever done. You know, like nothing right. is, nothing is. Right, just, nothing is. The next one. The next one. Yeah. What is the next one? I can't tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, you said uh, 90% of what I do is teaching clients how to see. Right. How do you do that? <laughs> Asking for a friend. She's, she's uh, this, is, this is serious. Yeah. I mean, designers always tend to think, well, the client just doesn't get this, or the client's stupid, or the client... Designers, as my partner Michael Beirut are the, always said, is that the designers are the weird ones and the clients are the normal people. <laughs> like what they see and what they understand is what most people see and understand. And that they're not – they don't understand things like scale or, or how proportions work or how typography works, and though they're getting much more sophisticated. Um, but I'm talking – I'm generalizing very much, and there's no reason that they should know. Mm. So it means that – when you're explaining why you're crafting something a certain way, that you have to be able to first make the client understand that you're crafting it a certain way because you're actually in support of the idea that the the two of you have agreed upon. Mm. And that in that agreement to carry out the certain functions that the thing has to do in relationship to its audiences you're making specific choices that involve color and scale and the form of typography. And sometimes I'll even give a typographic lecture to say, well, this used to look cool at this period of time, but now you don't use it anymore because it's fallen out of fashion like a pair of pants that are too long or too short. Mm. And begin to make analogies Mm. that they would understand and ultimately, through example, get them to understand why you're doing something. When you teach them how to see... You're not selling them a design. You're showing them why you did something in, in the most kind of instructive way possible that is not demeaning or insulting, but mm. is straightforward. Mm. And so that if they make a suggestion and you know that that suggestion is going to mess up the thing that they want because it's for them, you have to explain to them why. Mm. And they have to see it. And not feel like you're just being uh, argumentative right. or that you just don't want to do it or don't want to try it. That's right. Yeah. Or sometimes you try to show them. Right. That's dangerous, but you can try to show them. <laughs> it's sometimes a slippery like slope. It. It's a slippery slope, but mostly it's 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 worth it. Yeah. I would say. Um, you've been at Pentagram now for how long? Twenty eight years. Wow. Last week. Wow. Um, what is it about Pentagram? Oh, Pentagram's amazing. Pentagram is um, a very unique organization. It's it's designed. It's a design business that's designed for designers to work. It, it is a, a partnership that is a cooperative where the partners are elected in. They're usually outside designers within the community, and we, as a group, look and 
find like-minded designers who want to join, who we think have the talent and, and the ability to grow, and we select them as partners. And over the period of time, their careers sort of go up and others stay flat, and, mm. and there's an arc over it, and uh, we all share profit, and we all share intelligence, we all share space, yeah. and we share a cook. <laughs> and we don't share staff. Our teams are unique to the designers, to, right. the, to the partners. The so partners, each partner has their each own partner team. makes their own team. The teams reflect the partners' personalities, mm. and then services like accounting and 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 uh, PR and uh, you know technology are shared. Right, right. they're shared All resources the o- overhead and, space. and stuff. Um, so it's a great place to work. Yeah. It's really very atelier-like. And you're running your business like you would run it on your own. You have your own clients. You take whatever you want. You pay your team whatever you want. But you have to show a profit at the end of the month, just like you would if you were in your own business. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And you have the support of others uh, That's right. there to help you. Um, what What advice do you have for young people looking to sort of get themselves known by someone like yourself? Um what do you like to see from people? What do you look for when you're looking for a new member of the team or when you're thinking about, you know, who to I look hire? At, I look at thinking and craft. I've looked at the same thing for years, you know, that if you're going to work for me, you have to understand how ideas work and you have to understand typography. So that's what that's what I need to see because I need to know that if I ask you to do something, you're going to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, very often I hire my students because I already know what they know. Right. Um, the uh, the thing is that the difference between what you do in school and what is a professional experience is very, very broad and different. Yeah. And that um, if I see a student who I didn't teach and they have a terrific portfolio, I don't know how much it how much of it was them and how much was their teacher. Yeah. And I don't know how long it took them to do it. Right. So that's always a little nervous making. Yeah. Um, so we may try somebody out. Yeah. And they either sort of, you know, sink or swim, which is the way that that thing works. Yeah. Uh, Pentagram has a, a drop-off policy. You can send your, your book up and there's somebody who looks at it centrally and makes recommendations to people looking for people. Right, right. Like that exists. Oh, that's cool. So people can just bring their stuff over to Pentagram. Well, they can send or... it over to they can send it over to an associate who right. pre-screens it. Got it. Know, Got and it. And that's the way that works. Some people get in through reference. Yeah, they're all different ways. Yeah. Um, are the graphic designers and the designers and the um, creatives you see now are they similar to the to you when you were coming out of school, or is there a difference now? Well, I think the the scale of the business changed. You know, when I when I started as a designer, it wasn't a very um, trafficked area. Most people didn't know what a graphic designer was. Right. Um, and I remember I could get in, I could make a phone call and get in and have a, an appointment with art directors who actually looked at your portfolios in person. Right. By the time I was at CBS, the the I think. You know, 10 years later, the industry had grown so much that I, I had drop-off policy. Mm. And I would look at portfolios, and if somebody was really good, I'd, I'd make an appointment for them. But it had already moved from there's enough time that you could actually sit and talk to somebody yeah. to the drop-off. Now, I, most people <laughs> send me portfolios online. Yeah. And that's tricky because I can't get back to everybody. I get a lot of them. I answer most. And they come from all over the world. Right. Yeah. 
What are you? What are the trends that you're seeing now that you that you are really interested in? Um, I think now is actually a great. It's an amazing time for typography. Um, there are incredible young typographers around. There's this really wonderful course uh, called Type at Cooper, where kids are going and they're learning to draw type and program type, and um, it's producing some really wonderful results. There are um, this. It's a very broad international community of type. I still think one of the best organizations that still functions the way it should is the Type Directors Club. Mm. And you get to see the best designs from all over the world, and, and a lot of young people are doing it and, and creating their own fonts. I think there's almost not a single project where it's an identity program for somebody where I don't make a bespoke font now. Right. You know, because of the na nature of being able to, to draw it and program it. Yeah. It's really changed. You, and, and it's actually better for the organizations economically because it used to be that you, could, you ordered type from a type house and you paid for each usage. Then you purchase the font. and you, Now you purchase the font and you pay a license. Yeah. If you have it drawn, you don't have to repay the license. You own it forever. Right. So it, it's really better for the organization to have their own typography. Yeah. It's part of the brand. It's, it's literally part, of the, part right. of, the, uh, of the business. Absolutely. Wow. Um, do you uh, what 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 books and and where do you get your inspiration right now? Where, um... Well, there are a number of websites that are terrific, um, and uh, you know there there is uh, I think the best the best graphic design publications and sites come out of London, um, and where you're continually seeing fresh work, and you know they still I Magazine is still in business and it's mm -hmm. always great. And um, there are uh, another, a number of new sites that have come up, like It's Nice That, and there was Graphique, which I haven't seen recently, but it, was, it used to be very inspiring. Um, I think the United States does far less in publishing um, compared to Europe, and I find that most of the things I look at are European. I'm a member of an organization called AGI, and, uh, which is Alliance Graphique International, and I think that the designers from all over the world are just smashing. Uh, really yeah. wonderful work out of Switzerland, Germany, Japan, Korea, yeah. uh, China. What, what's happened here? Has everyone gone into startups and... and uh... <laughs> I think that... I think the United States has gotten very backward and I'm uh, visually and I'm not quite sure why. Not yeah. everybody, but I think that you're right about... Uh, Sort of these behemoths, like, uh, and I wouldn't say say startups. I'd say places like Google and um, uh, Apple and a few other of the large scale Facebook large scale technology companies have very high salaries, and they they hire young people of immense talent. Yeah, where they don't really make anything. Right. You know, and they're sort of doing. You know, like if you're working for Apple, you're doing sort of a. You might be art directing a drop shadow on a product shot. You know, I mean, yeah. or or that. You're following very specific format, and the the number of like expressive creative pieces in relationship to what the vast amount of work is may be narrow. Yeah, um, and I think that there have been spectacular uh, editorial art directors in the United States, and that that of course is dwindling because there's so few magazines now. Yeah. So that, and I'm I'm looking at graphic design. That's what I know about, and that's yeah. what I can talk about. And yeah. I think that that it's bad for the United States. It's bad for the United States design community. Right. 
Um, and then the expectation, because of technology, has led designers to either, you know, go into more lucrative programming work or designing and maintaining websites, which are not terribly interesting. Mm. And so that it, the, the amount of growth is limited and they don't have the same... I think pentagram becomes unusual because we have this breadth of design that's other than that. Yeah. Because it really is identity work, uh, developing identities, developing places. Yeah. Uh, designing, um, you know, packaging and three-dimensional things. Physical and not things. These physical things. That are real. Right. right. Uh, that seems to be more, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's become rare. Yeah, it's become rare because right. the, that's, there's so much in the digital world that is ephemeral and, and you know, we, we can't put as much money behind it because it's going to be gone in a week. And it's going right. to be, uh, but, um, and it strikes me that that, that sort of dovetails with the uh, the whole movement of uh, in-house um, creative departments um, for brands like Google and brands like... Well, in-house but, departments but, are great. But brands like... Uh, yeah, why so? Talk, talk to me about that. Well, you know, I mean, they're all Because you were different. at Columbia. You were sort yes, of I think I'm, I'm a big fan of in-house art departments. I think, first of all, if I design an identity... I really want there to be a great in-house art department who are who are working with that identity because they'll grow it. You know, that if you give I always say this thing and and it's not I, I say it a little bit tongue in cheek, but I actually think standards manuals are sort of useless because mm-hmm. if you've designed something and you know what the thing looks like, a good designer can look at the work, analyze it and make something that looks like that fairly consistently and has the ability to adapt it when there's a situation where what's in the manual doesn't work. Mm. So that the manual is sort of useless to them because once right. they know the fonts, the, the name of the font and how the thing's supposed to look, they'll do it. Yeah. A bad designer with a manual is a disaster because no matter how much stuff is in the manual, um, there's always going to be something there that isn't covered, so they're going right. to do something terrible with it. So therefore, yeah. why make the manual? Yeah. Yeah. The manual is actually uh, a bad thing because it covers for a lot of a lot of bad people. At yeah. the at the public, um, what I did um, this took me twenty. It really took me twenty years to figure out to do is that they had so many programs and so many things that had to be done, and that you couldn't you couldn't make a manual for it because. They would. They would just look like it, it would be. It would become road. It wouldn't be. Um, it wouldn't have spirit. Right. And really, the sort of images that the public would make to represent itself are more poster-like. So yeah. it's like doing sort of a poster for everything, but you can't make a manual for poster. Except for I figured out that if I took all the programs of the public and I took the summer season poster and figured out the properties that made that poster work. That could be a manual for the in-house art department for one year, right? And they actually, they actually do it. I would have to show you yeah. to to so you can see how consistent it is. But if you go down to the public, you'll see it right away, right? Right. Um, and it's all interpretive because they're actually t- they're, the graphics don't have a manual or a guide or or you don't have to copy a line with. You're copying a spirit of something, right? Yeah. And then the spirit is reinterpreted for different images and different sizes and scales, and they'll do it for a year, and then next year they get a new manual. Yeah, yeah. And so it sort yeah. of, and, and it 
took all those years of being there to figure out to do that, mm. which was which was sort of interesting. To let one thing be the sort of the, it's a season. Yeah, you know, you right, don't you right. don't design. Oh, this is going to be it forever. It's a season, and then you change it. But the season has some of the same properties each year of of so it still feels like the public theater. It's just right. a version of it. Right, right, right. Um, but in house art departments, you think are important. And, well, and I couldn't good, do that without those things. in-house art, to be, art, art yeah. department. They're, they're talented. They know how to interpret. They make everything look terrific. It's all solid. I see everything. They send me PDFs all day long. I, you know, there's rarely anything wrong with it because they are already good designers, and they're mm. good designers with something good to work on, and that's fantastic. And if you, if you give that to a group of people, they're going to take it and grow it, and it's going to be better than you doing it yourself because they'll protect it because it's their, it becomes their work. It becomes their work, and it's not uh, – but it's important to give those people um, the – they need to have the right to change that and to make it into something even better inside of the well, organization. That, well, that's what that's what they do with it if they're the right people. Right. You know, that, that's, why, that's why the manual could be a hindrance – Right, because you're 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 enforcing something that doesn't allow for growth or change. Yeah. All right. But the but the politics have to be right. In other words, they have to have the ability to right. really have power in the situation, yeah. so the thing isn't being changed and destroyed when you're not there. Right, because it's so easy to make the artists do what you want them to do. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm I'm conscious of time. Are we are we up? Ten minutes. Okay. Uh, do you do you have ten minutes? Are you good? I think so. Okay. I think good. my calendar was set up that way. Okay, great. Um, I love the the sort of question you asked to, to Microsoft when you took on their, their Windows. Uh, if your name is Windows, why is your logo a flag? I love how you came in. And then, and then connected to that is uh, the best way to be serious is to be unqualified for the job. So like coming in with a, with a question that is so, I don't know, almost childlike. And it's like... Uh, is that something that you like to do? Is to come in with a well, it is. It's an obvious question, but I well, I wouldn't call it provocative. It does look like a flag. It was yeah. like this waving thing, you know. Yeah. Like it was sort of like squiggly, and you know, I knew how that flag got to be. I knew I could. Yes. I looked at the history of the logos because you look at all the logos, and the first logo was sort of an eccentric window. Mm. The second logo was the window sort of broken out into bitmaps. And you yeah. know at the meeting somebody had somebody said, We have to show we're digital. So they made all the <laughs> stupid bitmaps. Then the third the third one they started making the window curvy, which I think was supposed to be a window in in, in perspective, which is what I ended up doing. Mm. But I think they didn't know how to do it in perspective because it would be it would be it would never move. Right. So they, they thought, well if they made it wavy, it would look like the window was in motion. You know, that it wasn't a static window because they want things to move on the computer. Right. You know, yeah. so that was all a result of some stupid thing somebody said in a, in, a, in a meeting. Yeah. And it looked like that. And what they ended up with was four color blocks with thick weight to it, which I couldn't quite figure out. I can't believe somebody probably thought something looked too thin or too slight. You know, right, it's usually right. some combination that builds these things. And it waved. And then I asked what the four colors meant, and they didn't mean anything. <laughs> and, that, you know, so that, that it just looked like a flag. And so I said, yeah. why are you doing that? And, yeah. you know, they, and they no had knew. a, well, they had a laugh because they didn't know. Yeah. They, because the history was greater than the people in the room at that moment. Yeah. And that's always what happens at companies when they're, you know, I, I mean, in every identity situation with a big corporation, I confront that, is that 
something happened along the way as a result of something else. And they made a decision at that moment based on that thing. And there was no sense of how this thing's going to work over a lot of years. Mm. And that's how things get silly. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's sometimes good to stay involved or why time actually matters. Right. And, and um, I'm sure that the person that designed that Bitmark logo thought that was the coolest, smartest thing to do at that time. Right. But looking at it, you know, 12 years later is silly. Yeah. It seems dated now. Right. Because it is pointing to something from culture that doesn't exist anymore, really. And doesn't really matter. It's part of history and it doesn't, you know, like it, it mattered at that moment in time. Right. And then everybody, everybody had that. And then right. It, then it was ubiquitous and then right. it didn't matter. And now it, now it's just ridiculous. Yeah. But, but these things always happen. At big corporations at big, in particular. Well, it's even in small places. That people just seem to uh, feel like, oh, this is how we've always done it. I don't know why. It's not my job to ask. We're just. Well, the people come and the, 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 the. Personnel changes, yeah. and nobody really knows how it happened. Right, and, and nobody you know, keeps the history of the logo, really. Well, I, it, interestingly enough, um, I it, it's the twenty last year was the twentieth anniversary of my Citibank logo, yes. and they made a film about me talking about the logo for city employees, and nobody <sighs> knew that the arc was part of a merger. Like there was there was a merger yeah. between two companies and the arc was Solomon uh, Smith Barney. No, it was or, or, uh, Travelers. Um, travelers and right. Travelers had an umbrella. Yeah, and the arc symbolized the umbrella, and Travelers had mar- merged with City, which is why I did that. Yeah, and you know people accepted it, but they didn't know why it was there. And yeah. it was like th- there was a whole corporation of thousands of people that were just mystified. Yeah, they had no idea. Yeah, and that's when you started painting, right? You started painting your maps. Oh, when you were time. doing the city bank, because I saw you talking about it, and it was almost like the 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 constant meetings. The the way you were talking about it was the constant meetings had worn you down so much that you needed this outlet, which I found interesting. Is like like you've got to do this job, and you got to do it professionally, and you have to keep these you know these boardrooms of of people who don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> sort of nodding their heads, and go through all of those hoops. And it takes a long time, something that should have taken probably, I don't know, uh, a few months, took years and years. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was these iterations of yeah. the same thing that were really the most monotonous part because it had to be seen a little bit this way and a little bit that way and a little bit this way and a little bit that way. And it went on and on and on for a year and a half. Mm. And then they never made a firm decision on actually selecting that logo, you know. What happened was that uh, Fallon, which was the ad agency at that time, uh, did the Live Richly campaign, mm-hmm. and they had to put something in the corner of the ad, and that just had survived. Yeah, even though it was the that first was the thing one that I drew, it just be. like survived everything, and so they stuck it on the on the uh, ad, and that was the logo. <laughs> That's how the decision was made. Pretty well, the much. ad agency thinks it's cool, so we're going to no. We're the ad say agency yes didn't have anything to do with. No, they they literally internally had just had to stick something on it. They were out they're of like, time. All right, use this one. Yeah, it was, it, it hung around. <laughs> That was just, it just hung around the longest. <laughs> that's amazing. The sole survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's what, that's the way things happen. Yeah. But you, 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 you uh, started painting and, and is that like a, an outlet where you can just be free and clear or was it at first? I know it, it's well, changed over time. Well, I, I began doing it because I felt like I didn't make anything with my hands anymore. And I right. started out as a designer who did. And I, I began painting at, my weekend house where I had space and I could paint these big things that were 
very slow and very laborious. And I like the fact that they took a long period of time in relationship to design, which except for, except for approvals, doesn't take any time because you do it on the computer and it's almost instantaneous <laughs> because you can see it so fast. Yeah. So they were they were opposites and they balanced me. I never had the intention particularly of showing or selling or having galleries or anything like that. That was all more accidental because a, a friend of mine who was a painter and had a gallery, came up and saw them and took them to his gallery. And that, that sort of started that. And I didn't, you know, I began, I've been now, I'm at a different gallery and I have a print gallery. And, yeah. and, and it's a lot of years. And there are different things I, I've been doing with it over the years. And, and um, I still paint. I took a lot of commissions over the past couple of years because I was building a house and that sort of burned me out. But yeah. You know, it's now now it's part of my life, and I try to manage both. Yeah, um, and I go periods where I'm more focused on one than the other. Right now, I'm more much more focused on my design, I think, than my painting. Yeah, you're more focused on that. Yeah, I'd like I got very back. I have a sort of a a palette right now of of very interesting clients and and interesting works. So I'm just very involved in it. Yeah, and it goes back and forth. That's sometimes great. sometimes I think I'm you know emotionally focused on the paintings and sometimes I'm emotionally focused on the design. Um, anything else that I that I didn't ask? I'm I'm sort of new at this and uh... I can't think of a thing. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. And, nice to uh, be here. I really like your microphones. Thank you. So that was my interview with Paula Cher. As I said, I was really, I was really uh, nervous about that one. She's sort of the Paul McCartney of of, uh, of uh, design, and I did feel like I was in the presence of, of somebody really great. So I'm sorry if I was uh, less uh, <laughs> less interesting with my questions. But she was uh, she was lovely, and and talked a lot about the way she comes at projects, and really grateful that she came down. We're trying to do more design things to get that sort of aspect of the business into people's heads because it's a pretty cool uh, pretty cool way to make a living when you can see your work on the top of a building um, that must be uh, that must be amazing the a-list podcast is an inspiring action from Damasimo goldstein sponsored in part by ad house advertising school it's recorded at gramercy post in new york city our producer is casey valigursky our research was done by james neiman our engineer is joe webster and our show was edited by Matt Stillo. I'm Tom Chrisman. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can send me an email at tom at digobrands.com. Special thanks to Mark DeMassimo for believing in this inspiring action. And thanks to everyone listening around the world. <laughs>